This podcast is brought to you by Rupert Neve Designs. Not everyone has the budget, the room, or the production requirements for a console, but everyone wants the sound. And Rupert Neve's consoles have set the sonic bar for over 50 years. The 5060 centerpiece, the 5059 satellite, and 5057 orbit summing mixers bring that classic sound and tonal weight to your rack with the ability to add as much or little vintage vibe as you want via Rupert Neve Designs custom transformers, Class A electronics, and acclaimed silk circuitry. As your studio grows, these modular summing units can grow with it. Learn more at rupertneve.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. In this episode, we chat with producer-engineer Mitch Easter about working on the song that launched R.E.M.'s career, Radio Free Europe. The version of Radio Free Europe that we have all come to know and love was released in 1980 on the band's second album, Murmur. But there was an earlier version of the song recorded at Mitch's humble drive-in studios. Jeff Stanfield caught up with Mitch to talk about this seminal track and working with the band in their early days. Enjoy. Hey Mitch, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Well, we're we're here today to chat about REM's Radio Free Europe, and uh, I guess wherever else the conversation may take us. So there's a there's a version of of this on Murmur, um, and you did both recordings. But this the, you, there's a first recording of this song that that's recently uh, been released. Was curious, you know, how how this session came about, and you know, was this was your first time working with REM? So I was curious how how that relationship started. Yeah, uh, they came to my studio on the re- recommendation of uh, Peter Holzapple, who's an old friend, and they were staying with him in New York in his apartment um, in the early days of those guys playing in New York City, and uh, so you know they were going to come back home and record someplace. I think they were trying to avoid the sort of mainstream studios in Atlanta. You know, there was sort of a sense back then that there were the um, punk-approved studios or whatever, and then there was the old guard studios, you know, uh, and they wanted to avoid that. Um, I I guess there was also the idea that, you know, studios were very expensive, which they were. Um, At at any rate, I got, you know, the call, and they came in, and we did this, you know, weekend session. It was one of the first things I ever did. That was like a proper session with a band, you know. I just started my place. Um, so, you know, we just knocked it out like you do. We did three songs, and uh, yeah. So I'll leave it there and wait for your next question. Yeah. So tell me about the space. I mean, this was my understanding is that this was a studio that you built in your parents' garage. Right. And, and built would be um, sort of a grand word. Um, I think I, I think what you could say is we rolled the tape machines into this former garage. You know that was that was about all the construction was at that point. Uh, the the next phase of construction I think was to you know bash a hole through the wall for the window. I think the window was in, but 
I mean, we're talking basic, you know. And my parents had moved into this house that was like one of these long, you know, uh, late 1940s ranch houses. And it had a garage at one end that was a two-car garage, and it had been converted to a one-car garage and children's bedroom and sort of like boiler room. So, um, you know, perfect, right? So the car part became the studio, the children's bedroom was the control room, and the boiler area was like the isolation area because, you know, these things were separated by thin walls and doors. So good enough. So that that was kind of the setup. And I did that because I was just, uh, you know, I just didn't know if I was going to be able to actually pull this off. And the idea of doing it sort of correctly, you know, with rent and things like that was pretty scary. So the fact that I could use this garage just to sort of see how it might go, um, you know, was, was sort of crucial to my whole uh, whole concept. Right. And, and you said that this was one of the very first things you, you did, which was... Um quite serendipitous I I assume for your career but you know what how did you first get into and what were where was your interest in in recording uh well I started playing guitar when I was 12 that was 1967 1967 was a pretty good year for recorded music as were the 60s in general you know but um I just loved recording I loved recorded music you know I love tape recorders and stuff like that my dad came home with a tape recorder um I think in 1963, and it was just the best thing, you know. And it's funny how people bought tape machines back then. They just sort of had them in the house, and you sort of played with them, you know. And I really took to that thing. So, you know, years later when I was playing in bands and all that kind of stuff, and I thought about records, I just thought, this is what I want to do. Um, Playing on stage is super fun. Touring is super fun. But recordings are, you know, eternal and freer in a lot of ways, you know. So... Uh, when I was in college, I kept thinking, maybe I can just do that and never get a job. And so I just, that was what where all my thinking went, you know. So by the time I got out of college, I kind of knew about recording studios and equipment and stuff, and I've been thinking about it so much. Um, so I was able to scrape together the basics, you know, um, and they were pretty good basics. And um, so that that's what I had um, when we started the studio. And like I say, I just sort of did it on the cheap, you know, with the building, because I was a lot more interested in tape machines than acoustics at that point. You know, I kept thinking that, um, you know, digital delay was much more interesting than controlling, you know, reflections and low frequency buildup, you know. So, (laughs) you know, I think that was sort of the attitude. And it it made sense for the kind of bands that had come along then, because this was now 1980 when I set up the place in the summer of 1980. And that was like the year that like, you know, punk rock and stuff reached the hinterlands and college radio came back to life and a lot of things that were kind of very good timing for me to do the kind of place I had, you know, because if I was trying to attract an ad agency to come in and do the voiceover, they'd be like, yeah, right, you know. But for a band looking to not spend a lot of money with somebody who liked what they did, you know, um, it was perfect. Do you remember what what gear you had in the studio when REM came in to do Radio Free Europe? Oh, yeah. I kept this stuff for a long time. I, I, I had a pretty proper little recording console, a Quantum console. And, and, and now Quantum is this sort of like revered, forgotten legacy brand, but it was just another one of these sort of fairly new American console companies back then. And they made sort of the, one of the very few things that was you know, less than $85,000, you know, that you could 
say it was a proper recording console. Uh, it had 20 channels and eight buses, and, you know, it was pretty cool. And I had a 3M M56 16-track machine, which is a great tape recorder, and, uh, you know, 2-inch machine. I wanted to just leapfrog the half-inch 8 thing that was sort of the dominant punk rock format then. You know, I wanted to be a little snazzier. So I really set my sights on a 2-inch machine, and I had the 3M M56, I mean M64 two-track, which looks like the M56 and same technology. So I had good recorders, um, and I had, you know, like maybe, you know, eight microphones and uh, two compressors, which were Allison Gain Brains, and I had a Quantum Spring Reverb, and that's it. <laughs> that was all we had. I mean, you said that this was like a... A weekend session, you did three songs. I mean, were you aware of R.E.M. before uh, they showed up uh, at all? No, I mean, they, 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 weren't, they weren't famous. You know, they were a band from Athens who were starting to play out. And, and people loved them in Athens, and, you know, they, were, they did well everywhere, but they were kind of a new band. I think they had been together maybe a year at this point. But, you know, basically they were just, you know, four guys pulling up in a van. You know, the classic American band thing you know um so no I, I hadn't heard of them i had seen a poster for them um you know playing at a club somewhere else in north carolina but I'd, i had no idea what they sounded like or anything i mean the recording itself uh i mean the urgency of it is so much different than what ended up on murmur i mean it has you know the tempo's faster it's a it's a lot raw it just it does have this you know it has a little bit more of a punk rock aesthetic to it even though it's uh you know, it's not a punk song, but it, it certainly feels that way. It has that energy. Is that just what happened? I mean, when, you know, you they rolled in, they, they put their, you put the mics up and got going and that was it. Um, you know, sort of. I mean, you know, you're talking the whole time, of course, and it, it's happening, but it doesn't just happen in a total vacuum, you know. And they came into, uh, into town the night before and they stayed over at my house. We played records and I have no idea what we listened to. But, you know, that was really useful just to talk about stuff and all. I mean, having said that, you know, what I had in my head for those years was I wanted everything to sound like Low, you know, by David Bowie. And, of course, that was fantastically dense and complex in a way that I had no idea exactly what was going on, even though I'd given it a lot of thought. I mean, I wouldn't have known how to do that, you know, and it wasn't even appropriate. So, you know, there's a lot of things you're thinking about that you love and stuff, and then you're, the reality is is another thing altogether. And the reality was, you know, right, let's get this done. You know, here we go. We don't have funny noises like that, you know, bam, you know. And, I mean, I liked everything, you know. I, I'm not a purist, and um, so I always like to know what the band wants to do, and I'm never shy about saying, well, what if we do this, you know, and just try it on them, you know. But, I mean, it wasn't a production in the sense of all this talk and planning or anything, you know. And that wasn't even the attitude you know i mean that was the sort of breakthrough attitude is that you don't do that stuff right i mean i'm not saying that it's good or bad to really plan everything out but there was a, a punk thing in the air that i absolutely loved you know that was pretty much the opposite of you know your expensive slow careful productions and you know they certainly subscribed to that mentality and and i did too i just loved it you know i was i sort of got to be an adult right when you know, the, the sort of yacht rock dominance of the radio was happening, and I was really depressed about it, you know. So the fact that a couple of years later, bands that were, you know, 
50 BPM faster all the time was very good news to me, you know. And, you know, when I hear the stuff that I recorded around the time of the RM session, everything is fast, you know. It was just a fast world back then, you know, and it suited the heck out of me, you know. I mean, I think people might listen to this record now and think that everything was very deliberate and we were responding to this, that, and the other, and, and we maybe were, but it was all very, you know, just sort of in the air more than anything. Yeah, that's fun. It's funny how that happens. I mean, I read somewhere that, you know, you, you were a, a fan of the Krautrock stuff. I mean, you, you mentioned Low, which was done in Berlin, but, um, you know, th there are so many bands. I mean, I remember hearing Radio Free Europe. Uh, I mean, I was, a, I was a young teenager in 1980 when this record came out, and I remember loving it for its urgency and stuff, but later came to love bands like Can and there is something yeah. there is something about especially the version that's on murmur there's something very reminiscent of those records which i thought was really interesting in retrospect because i didn't know those bands when i was a kid um right i mean was, was that at all calculated on either recording uh not not in this way of like this is like can or this is like noy or those kind of straight beats but what you said is kind of true i mean you know i think that especially that slow version on murmur has that sort of going in a straight line kind of just super steady groove thing that's kind of nice i mean i mean having said that i i, I do really kind of prefer the fast version of that song you know for for that but of course, the one one on Murmur sounds a lot better. It's a lot more hi-fi, and it's got a little more, you know, nuance and depth or whatever. But um, you know, a, a composite version would be sort of maybe the ideal, you know. <laughs> and and you may know that in the old version, there is the other sort of quasi controversy around it that's kind of great is that, um, you know, we we did the session and we mixed it and everything, but then they got involved with the guy who put the single out Check and he wanted to two. remix it. And he came up to our studio and, and did another mix. And it's hard, not that much different. But I think the one that was done in the first place was really better. And that's the one that's on the cassette that the band circulated. So if you get the reissue thing that's out now, if you get the cassette, apparently you get the original mix. And if you get the 7-inch, you get the second mix, which does represent what that 7-inch sounded like. But um, for what it's worth, they're actually sort of two kind of versions of the old one and only one version of the murmur one interesting and, and what was the what was the thought behind it slowing it down was that just to have it kind of fit with everything else that was on murmur i don't remember exactly i kind of think that that tempo suggestion came from don dixon and i'm not sure why maybe he just thought that you could kind of hear the song better you know i mean to some extent it is true that like you know when you spread things out a bit you can sort of you can just sort of hear it better, you know. And when stuff's real fast, you know, the main impression is fast. So maybe he just thought that it would be nice to just sort of let it do its thing a little more, you know, because it has some nice things, you know, like that bass climb thing before the chorus and stuff like that. Maybe that comes out a little better when it's slower, but I don't really remember why we agreed to do that. I mean, the band obviously agreed to do it too. This They weren't the kind of band that you would railroad, you know. Everything was certainly mutual, so... It was talked about 
to slow it down, but I, I don't quite know why now. That's my guess. Besides the tempo, there are a few different overdubs, uh, version to version. I mean, oh, yeah. on the first one, there's some kind of ghosty vocals happening in spots, and um, you know, the the real obvious one for me is uh, on the murmur version. Um, well, there's two things. Uh, one is the piano notes, you know, the low notes yeah. doubling the bass um, yeah. in the bridge, and then. Then there's these these stick clicks that come out that are like either, you know, and this is why great to ask you about it. Was you know was that an overdub or was that just a, a di- different miking, you know, a more uh, elaborate miking on the on the kit when you did that? Could you be talking about the uh, kabasa? There's a little ch- 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 thing that happens throughout on the murmur version, and it's I think it's a kabasa. Oh, it um, might may, I don't it think might it's be cl- clicks. And they're kind of short, you know. Maybe that's it, yeah. But if it's little little pairs of notes, little two notes together thing, that's what that is. And that that was an overdub. And I, I, again, I don't remember why we did it. It was just, I mean, you know, percussion is great. So uh, sometimes, you know, a tambourine or whatever is the thing that saves the day. And maybe it was just thought that it propelled the song a little more. Um, the one thing that's uh, that I kind of like is that. You know, in the middle, there's a funny clang noise, and that's yeah. on the uh, the the single, the old version as well. And it is the same triangle um, that was used on the old one. I took it to Charlotte, where we recorded the other place, and we used the same triangle. And I'm pretty sure it was played by um, the legendary um, late Sarah Romweber, who was the drummer in my band back then, um, Let's Active. And she, I believe she uh, was allowed to lay down the triangle on the murmur version i might be dreaming but i think that's a little footnote that is maybe lost to history that sarah ron weber fans might appreciate knowing the original version that you guys did got enough attention to have irs want to put out a record i think it was irs that put out chronic town is that that's right right yeah but it had already been recorded they got the deal you know um after it was finished and the plan was for them to put it out on this label that they were sort of setting up with the people they were you know that were, who were helping them back then um but in the end they got the irs deal and irs just put chronic town out and you know they irs had this kind of i thought good scheme of doing these debut eps on people to sort of test the waters you know and so the fact that it was an ep was like perfect so they just picked it up and put it out even though Radio Free Europe was a, the track that kind of got them pushed into that, you know, got them some notoriety, it was left off of that. Was there a, was the idea just to save it or? Chronic Town wasn't meant to be like the first album that had the singles on it or anything. It was just the next thing, you know. And you worked on that and then you worked on Murmur, but you worked on Murmur after they'd already started with someone else and decided they weren't happy with the way things were going and it was kind of getting over overwrought production-wise, I guess. Um, when they got signed, you know, they they went ahead and put out the EP um, because that was, their, was what they did, you know. And then when they started paying more attention to the band, they had more sort of ideas about this first album and... Um, you know, IRS was a pretty hip label, you know, bless their hearts, but I imagine they thought Chronic Town was kind of weird, and it would be nice if it sounded a little more professional, you know, or a little more like whatever, you know, um, because for that one, you know, there was all this talk like you have to record on 24 tracks, <laughs> you know, as if more tracks makes you better, you know, but that was the mentality in general back then, and um, 
the other session they had done was sort of a tryout. You know, the uh, the label had absolutely no interest in me or me and Don Dixon or anything because they had never heard of us. And um, so, you know, they were looking to people that were sort of fashionable people of the day or up-and-comers or whatever, you know. And, and so they had put them with somebody to do a sort of test session with. But it was considered to be a real disaster by the band, and they absolutely were not going to do that. So it's not like they had started the record, really. They had just done this test session. And then, you know, the track that I should say that I also, with my friend Don Dixon, kind of auditioned for Murmur 2, and I think we failed the audition, but I think R.E.M. said, well, too bad, we're just going to do this. And it was kind of great the way R.E.M. could always pull that off. They always got their way, mostly, and it's kind of beautiful, right? I mean, <laughs> they just announced what they were going to do, and they would do it, which, you know, they might not have been able to do somewhere else. But, I mean, even after we had started doing murmur um there was not a lot of enthusiasm from irs about that fact but then the record did really well so you know hey you know it's just fun to go back to that record really appreciating you know not not just the songs but the presentation of those songs is quite straightforward and i just love the immediacy of it and there's no there's no trickery there's no there's nothing big and fancy and overproduced about it it's just they're great songs with you know tons of personality and it's not very dated you know for the year you could go back to a lot of records that were made that year and i could tell you they were made in that year and and that's not really the case for murmur or 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 many a lot of those records early records well yeah you know the the story about murmur which is kind of great and it is something that ended up being probably really good in some ways is that um you know, because of that test session they had done before Murmur, which they hated, they were, you know, we had a lot of, uh, between the first single in Chronic Town, there's a big, to my mind, improvement in the scope of things. You know, in Chronic Town, there are a lot more sounds and there's more funny noises and stuff, which I loved. And I got them into that too. Like they liked it as well. And so, you know, you've got, it's just got more to it. And when they came in to do Murmur, they had really retreated back into this super conservative mindset of the studio is this horrible place where they make you sound ridiculous, you know, and we hate all that. So we want it to sound just like we do on stage. Well, you know, everybody kind of says that, but if you make a record like that, it's really hard for it to actually be interesting, you know, and, and especially for, well, it just is hard to make it interesting. It can be done, but it's not that easy. We just didn't want to do that. It's like, why would you, you know, even bother to go into the studio to make a record like that? You know, so we had to sort of pull them out of this super anti mindset and convince them that overdubs and things are nice and worth doing, and you won't be sorry. Basically, what we had to do was figure out the vocabulary that was acceptable acceptable to them, which was, you know, what you would consider real instruments. So synthesizers were absolutely taboo. Not that that had crossed anybody's mind, but they had been put on this test session and they hated that. But they love stuff like the piano and the vibes and the, you know, um, timpani and things like that that the studio had. The place we worked at for Murmur was a really good, well-equipped place. Um, and it had all those things that Southern Studios always had back then, which was like a nice piano and a nice Hammond organ and stuff, you know. So once we got him into using that stuff, then we were able to sort of put in some color on the record, you know. Um, Thank goodness, because I think without that, the record, you know, the songs needed a bit of development, you know. Um, and so, you know, it's not an overwrought kind of production where it's very much the absolute latest 
keyboard that came out that week, you know, which is what probably did serve it well that we don't have that stuff on there. I don't think we would have anyway. But anyway, because of all these factors, the record is sort of anachronistic. You can't exactly tell when it was done. And when we got finished with it, I thought, wow, this is this record is really kind of 70s sounding, you know, which I thought was actually sort of cool. Um, and it does sort of stand apart sonically from a lot of what was around it, which is kind of cool. So I was curious, you know, what you hear when, when you listen to Radio Free Europe now. You know, you just, I just have memories in my head. I, I remember that the original version was, you know, fun to do, and I liked it. It was a catchy song and all that kind of stuff. At the time, I was surprised at how sort of classic it was in a way. You know, I mean, it's like those guys were very punky on stage, but their songwriting wasn't really punk rock songwriting. I mean, it had elements, but it was kind of cool to me that it was what it made me think of because and I'm only a little bit older than them, but it made me think of like, you know, 60s garage bands, you know, and I was like, yeah, I like that, you know. Um, it's, you know, it was kind of a, it it harked back to a lot of stuff that I liked. It didn't strike me as like, nobody has ever put these chords together before. It wasn't that kind of song at all. But the combined thing had a really good mood that made me feel good, you know. And then the other side of the single was um, Sitting Still, which is a nice song, you know, and uh not mentioned so much, but that really made that a good, strong single. You know, it's kind of like those Beatles singles where the A side and the B side were really good. Um, so I love that about them, you know. And then they got into a, a sort of a weirder kind of songwriting, you know, like on Murmur and like some of the songs on um, on Chronic Town too, where it's these sort of guitar chords that no bar band ever uses, you know, and stuff. And, of course, I really, really love that because I like a little bit of, you know, exoticism, dare I say, you know. Um uh, so I'm just reminded of, you know, what it made me feel like, like the the combination of it seeming sort of old, but but new at the same time was, was really nice. And when I hear the Murmur version, I just sort of think about how it was put together. Um, it has such a different sound to it, you know, but it's interesting. I can't really compare it to anything else, the way it sounds. It sounds kind of cool, and the snare drum is kind of strange sounding on the Murmur one because it's also overdubbed in addition to what he played live just to get this sound you know and so I just remember things like that about it um, but like I say I have a little bit of fondness for the sort of you know classic US garage band enthusiasm of the the old version you know I just I just love how fast it is I love how fast all that stuff is when I hear it the thing about the fast that I should say too is that I, I guess you know the Chronic Town record, and it has a song on there called Wolves Lower, which is a really good song, and it's pretty fast, but we recorded that song a month or two before the version that's on Chronic Town, and it's, like, really a lot faster. And it's it's so fast that when I think about, like, the two-handed hi-hat part that Bill had to play on the sort of pre-chorus thing, I think, how did he do that, you know? It's like that they really were emblematic to me of how fast everything was in those years <laughs> i just love that you know so that's what i think about i also think about the fact that holy shit we recorded this 40 years ago and people are talking about this that is really weird <laughs> weird to me you know that something can for whatever reason just connect with the universe and have a life you know it's it's cool i mean at this point i've talked to so many people that tell me what that song meant to them and or that little single and it's like, well, that's cool. That's what we wanted to have happen. But, you know, it rarely does. So, um, 
Yeah, it's like the, un- the, the universe aligns. The magic happened, I guess. Apparently, and you, you wonder about stuff like that, like, you know, if it had come out one week sooner, would it have been eclipsed by something else, you know, and nobody would have heard it. I mean, that's always a factor with this stuff, you know. It's Radio Free Europe was a tune I remember very distinctly being on a road trip, you know, driving with my daughter and being like, check this out, and having her be like, oh, wow, this is cool, <laughs> you know. And, and it sends them down a whole path of, you know, God, I would just scrolling through the discography. It's massive, you know, and there's so much music there. And it, and so, you know, it's interesting to see the, the legacy and lineage of, you know, even just one song. Exactly. And I think, you know, now that I'm thinking about this one song, I'm thinking about some of the other things we did. Even in our quickie weekend session, we did some things that I think are aligned with the kind of mentality that those guys had, which I think people kind of picked up, you know, which is that there's, it's not like those guys are jokers, but there is some humor, there is some wit or whatever going on, you know, a lot of times. And and kind of a a thing that like kids like to do is can be part of what they did in their rock career here and there. And what I'm getting at is that on the chorus of Radio for Europe, I think, and I'm pretty sure I told them to do this. They sang the backing vocals through cardboard tubes because, you know, when you're a kid, it's kind of a thrill to discover what that sounds like, right? So, you know, it's got that calling all part, and it's got this filtered kind of, you know, all mid-range sound that I'm pretty sure that was achieved with the cardboard tubes. You know, I think I went in the kitchen and got some paper towels and, you know, rolled them off the tubes, and we did that, you know. And a lot of bands that I could have worked with would have gone like, well, that's stupid. Can't you just do that with EQ? But, you know, they were way more interested in singing through the cardboard tubes, which I loved. You know, I think that's part of what was great about working with them. And I think they kept that kind of whimsy, you know, in their their thing throughout their career. And, and I'm, you know what I mean by whimsy? It's just sort of a freedom in a way uh, to be themselves. You know, sometimes singing through a cardboard tube or, or the equivalent can really just lighten the the tension or the stress or, you know, you know, those, those little things are, you mentioned it as an aside, but I know you also know the the value of going to say, you know, it's like, I think that you can't really split this thing up into different segments too much. You know, it's all sort of showbiz, right? So this band needs to have some kind of fun in the studio. Right. And, and, uh, you know, these, these real laborious kind of tedious type sessions just have always been depressing to me. You know, you got to work and you got to get something that sounds good. But you need to do stuff like this, too, you know, and it's not just to be goofy. It's like it makes a sound that's cool, you know, and I really enjoy working with people that can think that way. You know, I, I don't think this should be quite like an office job, you know, and this is nothing against office jobs. But you know what I mean? It's part of its virtue and is that it's an alternative to daily life. You know, it's music takes you somewhere else. Right. So anything you can do that's part of that is has always been appealing to me. Um and the fact that they appreciated that sort of mentality, I think, is why we got along really well. You know, it's like, um, I don't know. I just I just like that sort of thing. And, and I think that, like, it's a, when I finally started doing this kind of for real and I was reading about recording sessions, it was always about these sort of, you know, like big hit kind of sessions. And sometimes they sounded fun and sometimes they sounded like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, all this very sort of hyper careful kind of stuff just isn't where it's at for me and and that's nothing against slick records you know what i mean but it's sort of like especially at the age i was at and the kind of stuff that was in the air i just kind of wanted to go blah you know i didn't want to 
have to say, well, you can't use that because that's a large diaphragm, and for that sound, you have to use this. And it's like, ah, who cares? You know, uh, I'm still a bit that way. You know, and and so a sort of happy contrariness, you know, out of the way to work was, I think, what kept us having a good time on those records um, for the one the ones that we did together. And I'm sure the band kept that going onwards because they're just kind of like that. Well, I just I just love the whole story because it's really you know very tape op you, you made a you made a record that <laughs> en, that endured with what you had um in a garage or a glorified stu you know garage <laughs> and um and we're, here we are talking about it today you know so right that is ideal right to me that's perfect i mean you know again you know the fabulous temples of sound are fabulous and they are temples of sound but how can you not love these sort of garage stories, you know, the fact that you can do something that means something to somebody. And now, of course, it doesn't mean as much because you can really make unbelievable records in your bedroom and blah, 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 you know, but it was a little harder to do then with real sounds. And I mean, you know, this only worked because of the times. I mean, there are a lot of things about the sonics of the old radio for Europe that would not cut it, you know, at mainstream radio. Uh, but it's kind of what people wanted to hear then. And it was great, you know, that things started to open up and change and everything did not have to sound like everything else on the radio. And of course, radio kind of never really caught up to that in a traditional sense. They were always sort of a bottleneck of so many things. But, um, you know, it, it did open things up somewhat. And and actually, to that end, too, you know, out of this, I, I worked in that garage for 13 years, which I just cannot believe. And by the end of that time, I was doing things in there that were pretty slick, too, you know, I mean, relatively speaking, you know, it's like you learn more and more about what to work, what works with your little, your little setup. And, you know, the setup got a little slicker, but the space didn't, you know, the space was always terrible, but it kind of didn't matter. You captured a moment and, you know, the moment didn't have to be captured in sonic perfection to have it mean something and, and resonate with the universe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what... There's so many definitions of like good sound, right? I mean, it's we know hi-fi when we hear it, but hi-fi is not the whole story, you know. And uh, so much of the th the thing about pop music that I love is that it works, you know, at this sort of dividing line between the familiar and the novel, right? And so, you know, you, if you have a one thing sometimes that's a little off. You know, it, it can be the thing that makes the guy at the radio station not play a record, or it can be the thing that makes it go to the top of the charts, or at least back when we had charts. And <laughs> yeah. I do love that, you know, that sort of sort of random, you never know what's going to click. And of course, that's that sounds like I'm a huge fan of novelty records, which I'm kind of not. But you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's like yeah, sure. the first time somebody put a wah-wah on something or, you know, had a you know fuzzy vocal or whatever, it's, it was a thing, you know. That's cool, right? Because it's like, officially wrong but it's so right you know to the ears of the public right so that's that's what keeps this kind of interesting um, i remember when we finished murmur i i was traveling to new york with the tapes to take them up to sterling to get mastered and i rode up there with these guys that were on tour and i played actually guys and some women and i played them a cassette and it was like well what do you think of this and they were like oh my god you know and i was like oh really you know because you you're working on something you don't really know what other people are going to think you know at, at, by the time you're finished with the record you've well that's the best i can do you know you're, you're not always sure about something so it's very cool for me personally to have something i had worked on you know cross that threshold but the fact that that is still a topic today does completely blow my mind you know i cannot quite wrap my head around the fact that it was 
four decades ago. <laughs> you know that we did that single. That's nuts, you know. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapebop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>